Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, October 13th. It's time for a monthly Call Your Senator segment with New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Our topics today will include the new inflation report that just came out this morning and the big cost of living increase for Social Security recipients that came out with it. Also, the implications of who controls the Senate after Election Day the Senate's role in the influx of asylum seekers from Venezuela, which is a national issue and currently very much a New York issue, with Mayor Adams declaring a state of emergency in New York City, as many of you know, and more. And if you have a question or a comment, New Yorkers, call your senator, but don't tell the people in the other 49 states they can call too. And Senator, we always appreciate that you do this. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. Well, that inflation report for September just out this morning showed an increase of four-tenths of one percent, which doesn't sound like much, but it was higher than expected, which was 0.3 percent. And it means the annual rate remains over 8 percent, the highest in 40 years. So do you have a take on the main sources of this persistent inflation right now? So there are sources. Um, Some of it's still COVID-related. The fact that our supply chain is not fully back up and running. Uh, We still have trucker shortages. We still have uh, jobs that are unfilled. And so production and supply chain is still a factor. The second factor is OPEC, the fact that they decided they're going to stop pumping oil uh, at the same rate as they were, which is just extremely cynical and political and very harmful to Americans' families and businesses. Uh, And then other than that, um, I think those are the two biggest drivers, and it's why we spent a lot of time figuring out how do you lower costs. The last bill we passed in this congressional session was to lower prescription drug prices, to, to look at seniors. Oh, there's a third reason. I'm sorry. Price gouging, <laughs> which is literally happening across the board from greedy industries. Uh-huh. So we made sure for Medicare that our seniors can get the medicines they take most regularly uh, and have a cap on how much they're going to cost. Insulin's capped. Um, major medicines that they need um, are now we're negotiating in bulk and getting the lowest rate. We also hear that gas prices, not just OPEC, but we are also hearing there's price gouging among the oil industry participants. So that's, of course, a challenge. Um, But it's also one of the reasons why this Social Security cost of living increase is so important, because it's even a bit higher than that inflation number you just said. There's going to be an 8.7% Social Security cost of living raise, which is the biggest in four decades. And so this cost of living adjustment is what our seniors have needed uh, because when the cost of groceries and the cost of medicine and the cost of heating are all going up, they need some source of, of, of money because they're on fixed income. And so this cost of living adjustment for Social Security recipients is really going to help our seniors. I just spent the last two weeks flying around New York, visiting communities and talking about 
a bill um, that we passed in the last session of getting more money for LIHEAP. I wrote a letter with a bunch of senators and Congress members telling the appropriators we need more money for home heating. And they answered yes, and we got another billion dollars just for home heating. That's going to mean $60 million are going to come to New York State alone just to defray heating costs. So seniors and families don't have to choose between food, medicine, and heat, all things that are necessary for life. And so it's it's why we're working so hard on these things, Brian, because the strains are real and we want to make sure we have answers and try to help as best we can because many things are out of our control. So I want to drill down a little more deeply on several of the things that you mentioned there, uh, the Social Security cost of living increase, also implications of that for the private sector, uh, the home heating assistance that you mentioned for low-income people. I know you've been traveling around the state letting people know that that's available. I definitely want to let people know specifically how that's available. Um, Also, the kind of kick in the shins that Saudi Arabia just gave the United States, despite President Biden being very nice to their leader, MBS, recently. Um, That has, you know, a relationship, of course, to the, the OPEC oil cuts in production, which will push up prices. So which ones of those should we start with? How about the Social Security increase? This is going to surprise a lot of people not on Social Security. Can you explain how that works? Why is Social Security linked to inflation? And therefore, this 8.7 increase in what Social Security recipients uh, will get next year. So when we created Social Security, the whole intention of the program was to make sure our seniors did not die in poverty, to make sure that people with significant medical issues didn't die in poverty. And so the whole purpose of the program was to keep a lifeline, uh, and people buy into it. They spend their whole life putting money aside into Social Security so that when they are older, they will have the resources they need to survive. And people have been arguing for these cost of living adjustments, certainly the the 14 years I've been in um, public service, and they are always insufficient. This is the first time in 40 years that this COLA increase is reflective of the true cost of living adjustment that's needed. And so this comes at a really good time because people need it. And it's the difference of literally being able to have enough money for those three items that I mentioned over and over again, heat in the winter and cooling in the summer, um, food on your table, and the medicines that keep our older Americans and Americans with disabilities alive. So Social Security is absolutely urgent, and it's the most important social safety net America has. And that's why we need to strengthen it, and we should always be focused on how we can shore it up so it's there for this generation and the next. Rick in Astoria, you're on WNYC with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Hi, Rick. Hi, good morning. Thank you for calling, my, making my call, uh, Senator. So I just wanted to take one quick issue with something you said early on, uh, that the recent cuts to OPEP production affected inflation for this last period. It did not. Those, those uh, uh, inflationary um, numbers will not come in for at least another month. We won't see the effects of that and the cuts to OPEC, uh, 2 million barrels uh, a day, for at least another month or two. So a uh, couple of things as a business owner. Uh, number one, we are still dealing with Trump-era tariffs. Uh, on many of the goods that come in into my business that have to be imported uh, from from Europe and from around the world. 
I'd like to know, A, what the Biden administration is doing to reduce those tariffs or eliminate those tariffs. Many of them are from products from Europe. And the second thing is, with regards to the cuts to OPEC, what is the administration uh, going to do to try to counter those effects? We need to bring in the oil from somewhere. And it seems to me like we are continuing this uh, – this spate around the world with oil producing countries, granted for good reason, uh, where we are on bad terms with many of these producers. So what are we planning on doing? Uh, if you could enlighten us, I would appreciate it. First of all, we need in energy independence from the Middle East because they are not our friends. And Saudi Arabia has shown its colors. They are not our friends. Um, and it, I disagree with you. I think the point you're making is that the, la the lack of production won't affect the supply chain for two months, but it affects people's opinions today. And so when I talk about price gouging, that's decisions that oil um, sellers are making to say, huh, we can get away with it. We can keep our prices as high as we want because look what OPEC just did. We might as well you know, make hay while the sun shines. So you're right. It doesn't that that particular oil doesn't get to America or whatever, you know, and it doesn't. It's not the numbers of what's been produced for a couple of months, but it affects the climate immediately, and unfortunately, it encourages people to price gouge. And we have had problems with price gouging in the energy sector. The thing that I'm working on very aggressively, and that Democrats have worked on, is. We just passed a bill, uh, which was the Inflation Reduction Act, which invested $370 billion into energy, um, specifically to reduce carbon emissions by 40% by 2030, direct investment into wind, solar, geothermal, hydropower, biofuels, all the alternative energies that create a, a green future. And we are um, – determined to change our energy usage in the country so we are less dependent. <clears throat> that comes through efficiency. That comes through electric cars. It comes through having the infrastructure for those kinds of innovations so that they can thrive. So it's a big long-term plan, but one that I think is urgent. Um, <clears throat> and we're trying to do everything we can because the impacts of global climate change also are extremely destructive. Um, we see how violent the storms are in Florida. We see how violent um, the fires are in California. We see the droughts throughout uh, California and other states that are devastating our agriculture and other industries. All of it has a drag on the economy. So um, I, I appreciate the fact that um, Trump-era policies have not been helpful. But um, we are working to unwind them and to find a better way to uh, create a growing economy. And um, that's certainly what I'm working on in Congress. Are you saying, though, that the Inflation Reduction Act that Congress just passed, and it is called the Inflation Reduction Act, is just a longer-term thing? And so if the president and the Democrats in Congress, like yourself, celebrated the passage of this historic Inflation Reduction Act, that people shouldn't expect that the 8%-plus annual inflation rate that we're still seeing is going to be affected right away? Um, that's why we're doing the immediate relief things. So the LIHEAP money, for example, is going to try to offset the fact that this estimate of um, – 
increase in people's heating is that it's going to go up by, by depending where on the state you are, between 25% and 45% people's heating prices are going to go up. Now, I don't know if that's because of the price gouging or because of OPEC, but it's probably a combination of both. And so that's a problem. And so the LIHEAP money uh, could defray people's costs for their home heating by 40%. So that's why we're looking for immediate solutions and long-term solutions at the same time. The reason why the Inflation Reduction Act was so positive for long-term energy is that it created incentives for clean energy production, $50 billion to expand tax credits for electricity produced from renewable sources, solar, wind, geothermal, $60 billion to establish clean electricity production and investment tax credits for net zero electric generating or storage facilities which, again, is the infrastructure so people can buy electric vehicles. Um, it also invested in rural power and clean energy, so $14 billion to lower costs for families and support good-paying clean energy jobs in rural communities specifically. That's going to mean biofuels in Iowa. It's going to mean making sure we use um, rural communities as the heart of how these clean energy jobs get created. And so... Some of it's going to affect people's view, and um, and hopefully that will allow for uh, more investment and more energy independence in our country, uh, which uh, uh, therefore allows us not to be beholden to Middle Eastern countries for our oil supply. And so, then if you're just talking about oil production, we mm -hmm. can increase our refineries uh, because we export a lot of our oil. Uh, when we had all those fights about pipelines – it was because the oil was being exported to China. It wasn't even being used domestically. But the bottleneck in U.S. oil production is in the refinery capacity. So if we want to be able to generate our own um, gasoline and fuel domestically, we need more refineries. And I know that certain states are looking at that now. But isn't that what the Republicans generally say? Increase oil and natural gas production in this country, while a lot of Democrats say, no, let's not do that and enable more production because it contributes to uh, the fossil fuel pollution that creates global warming? So the reason the Republicans are wrong is because they only want to do fossil fuels. And the answer is all of the above. The answer has to be you have to produce what you can produce domestically. You don't need to increase the amount of oil production we have because we have a lot already. And so you just need to refine it here so we can actually use it ourselves. But people like to sell their oil on the open market. It's a world market, and so that's what they do. We could have some of that here. And then you have to very significantly increase your reliance on green energy because that's how you're going to address the global climate change problems that are causing all of the damage, billions of dollars. I mean, Florida wants $33 billion. I mean, that's huge cost, and that's because of the challenges of global climate change and extreme weather. Uh, so you have to do both, and I think all of the above is always the right approach, and you have to use what we have here along with all new innovations and new technologies so we can um, transition in the next 20 years to a green future. If the Republicans win a majority, will you go from being anti-filibuster to being pro-filibuster, the 60% rather than 51%? vote rule for most bills, would, would you then start saying, hey, look, this project protects minority rights, make sure we have a real consensus, um, like sometimes people say about the filibuster rule? What, what's your position today, and how would that change 
if the Republicans win control? So my position has been that it's time to eliminate the filibuster because we are having rights, civil rights destroyed left and right easily. So uh, people are being denied their constitutional right to vote in southern states and states across the country. We uh, have lost our reproductive freedom because of a radical Supreme Court because Mitch McConnell stole a justice and then loaded the court up with ultra, ultra right-wing people uh, who have a very stark religious agenda. And I think that the reason to eliminate the filibuster is so that we can get basic things done. Now, the debate has been, if you eliminate the filibuster while you're in charge, you will not have the filibuster when you're not in charge, which really isn't great because Mitch McConnell is as dastardly as you can imagine and will do lots of terrible things. I just think the current system isn't working. And so I've been in favor of filibuster reform for a long time. Um, Maybe you can amend the filibuster for civil rights issues. Maybe you can do it for voting rights issues. There's lots of different ways to discuss it. But this current system isn't working, and basic things that we should be able to get done when we are in the majority aren't possible. And that's pretty dysfunctional. So will I hate it if Mitch McConnell's ever in charge and we don't have the filibuster? Absolutely. But the reason why I'm for fixing it, at least you know now, is because we've not been able to pass meaningful legislation that's necessary to protect our democracy, like voting rights. So it's just a conundrum, and it's not easy, and it's not going to be great if Mitch McConnell's in charge. So my job is to make sure we win the Senate, and I'm working very hard for Senate races across the country to make sure voters are fully informed and know who's running and why, and why um, these Democratic candidates are better for their values and for the needs of their families and communities. We have two minutes left, time for one more listener question, and this one comes from Twitter and goes back to the OPEC oil production cuts. Listener writes, many of our Republican neighbors are cheering on OPEC and Russia for making Democrats look weak. So let me frame that comment as a question to you this way. Um, You know, after President Biden had been so nice to Saudi Arabia's scandalized leader, MBS, giving him that fist bump in a photo op in July. Remember that? Despite the murder of the Saudi-American journalist Khashoggi from the Washington Post and despite Biden affirming that Saudi is an important ally or a country to have relations with, and now the Saudis are cutting production anyway, which really does help Russia in the war with Ukraine and make our inflation problem worse, and it humiliates the president. What the heck are they doing? And Biden has promised repercussions for Saudi Arabia in the last day or so. Do you have any that you recommend? Yes. um, You know, we have been such a good friend to Saudi Arabia over many, many years. And I would not um, support selling any military weapons to Saudi Arabia under this. I would stop um, supporting them in the many ways we have supported them over the last decade. And I think these are all um, things that President Biden will look at and decide what's the most effective way to express our displeasure. Uh, but we have, been, we have been helpful to them in many national security issues, in many military issues. And I, I just I think they have betrayed us in a way that is deeply damaging and has strengthened Russia while they attack Ukraine. And for Republicans to be happy about 
harming Ukrainians and empowering Russia, I think that's that's extremely negative and and something that they should not be proud of. Um, that is not who we are as a nation, and they should not be cheering on our enemies. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, that's our Call Your Senator segment for October. Talk to you next month. Thanks so much, as always, Senator. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.